So here we are today, once again, picking up our study in the book of Acts. And today we're going to focus in on the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the ascension is one of those events that for whatever reason, um, it, it's often passed over with, with little to no in-depth consideration. Now, I have to confess that I don't think I've ever actually preached on the, just the topic of the ascension. I've, I've certainly taught on it because I've taught through the Gospels many times, uh, but, I, but I've never actually you know, given a message like I'm going to give today uh, on this topic. Uh, but it's a really important topic. I remember some years ago, uh, Alistair Begg came and he shared with us uh, on a midweek uh, study night and he got up and he announced that his message that night was on the ascension. And I have to say, I was, I was kind of intrigued by that. I thought, wow, the ascension, okay. And, you know, it was actually a really good message. But um, here we are today and I think all of that to say we're going to take a long overdue look at this great and, and really relevant topic. I think you're going to find that it is uh, important and relevant. Uh, some of you perhaps remember the, the words to the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up in a kind of a liturgical church where the creeds were uh, said and so forth, you might remember the Apostles' Creed, but I want to start by reading to you a, a uh, portion from the Apostles' Creed. It goes like this, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the realm of the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come in the future to judge the living and the dead. So notice there, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, the reason I point this out is because the creeds, these ancient creeds, were ways of uh, condensing what they considered to be essential Christian doctrine. This is important. Uh, there are many things that aren't in the creeds, but the things that are were things that the early church leaders considered important. So notice that the ascension is there. They, they state clearly in the creed that Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, you might find it interesting that only Mark and Luke record the ascension. So Matthew doesn't record it. John doesn't record it. Mark just, I mean, it's like three words and in his reference to the ascension. So Luke is the one who focuses most on the ascension and actually his more detailed description of it is found in Acts rather than in his gospel. In the gospel of Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and 51, this is what Luke said. And he, speaking of Jesus, being, or, or led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted his hands up and blessed them. And now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So that's at the end of Luke's gospel. Now, as we pick up in Acts, which of course is, as we pointed out, this is the continuation 
of Luke's narrative. Verse nine, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So that is the most uh, descriptive text on the ascension that we have. So here's the question. What is the importance of the ascension? Or what, what does the ascension signify? And we're going to look at a few things, beginning with this one. The ascension signified that the work of redemption was completed. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, speaking of Christ, he sat down at the right hand of God. So the, the ascension is speaking to us about the fact that the work of Christ was completed. And the work of Christ, of course, it all began with the incarnation. And it's interesting because it was at the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, you remember Luke records this as well. Luke's the one that records that there was this angelic host that was there to really announce the birth of Christ. And now Luke has here at the ascension, Luke also tells us that there were angels attending to that. So the ascension brings finality to the mission of Christ. Now remember, Jesus rose from the dead, and there's a 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension. And, and during those 40 days, you know, he, he will appear to the disciples at various times. He will give them instruction and so forth. Uh, he, you know, he will come and be with them. And then he will just kind of go away. Now, you see where the ascension was, was really vital to kind of complete everything. Because had Jesus just sort of, you know, come and gone, come and gone like he did. And then one day just, you know, he came, he went, he never came back. I mean, you know, everybody would have sort of been wondering like, okay, you know, when's he going to show up again? Or, you know, where did he go? Or how come he hasn't been around for a while? So there has to be a finality to this redemptive work that he came to accomplish that began with the incarnation, but now it is here in the ascension that it's seen that the job has now been completed. So the thing that Jesus came from heaven to do, which was to redeem us, which was to die in the place of sinners, to make atonement for our sin, to provide forgiveness and reconciliation to God, he did it. It's completed, and the ascension showed that his task was accomplished. Secondly, the ascension signifies the universal presence of Jesus is now a reality. Now, Jesus, he during his time on earth, 
was limited by locality. So obviously Jesus wasn't everywhere at the same time when he was in his physical body. He was limited to that, but yet he had given a promise to his followers that he would be with them always, even to the very end of the age. So how is that going to be? Well, the ascension is where we find the answer because when Jesus ascended back into heaven, what happened then is he sent the spirit. And remember, we talked before about the spirit being the spirit of Christ. And so it's through the spirit that Jesus is able to be omnipresent. So he's able to be with everyone everywhere. But this happens after he ascends back into heaven. Remember how after he had risen from the dead, John tells us about how um, Mary Magdalene, she had come to the tomb and she looked in the tomb. Nobody was there. She's weeping. She's there in the garden. She sees this man. She thinks he's the gardener. And she comes and she says, you know, sir, tell me where you put his body. And the man speaks and Mary realizes it's Jesus. And so uh, she, you know, seemingly probably just, you know, falls down and, and, you know, grabs him tight around the legs. And Jesus says this to her. He says, Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, you see, Mary's thing was she was not going to ever let Jesus get away from her again. She was going to keep Jesus as close as possible. Now, of course, practically that was unrealistic, right? But that's probably what she was thinking. So she's got like a death grip on him, but he says, don't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. You see, it wasn't until he would ascend that he would be able to really be to Mary what she needed, his permanent presence with her. You see, because again, after the ascension and the Spirit comes, now the Spirit is going to dwell within the heart of Mary and all the other disciples. Christ is going to be with her in a way that she never even imagined or dreamed, dwelling in her heart, but then also present with her and them and us because of the spirit who is sent. So the universal presence of Jesus is now a reality because of the ascension. Had Jesus not returned to the father, the spirit wouldn't have come. Remember, we looked at that statement previously where Jesus said to the disciples, he said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go, the spirit won't come. But if I go, then I will send him to you. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus ascended back into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the father, and the Holy Spirit was then sent, the spirit of Christ, into the world so that he could be with us here today as we gather. But guess what? He's with his people that are gathering on the other side of the world as well. He's with all of his people, wherever they might be, all the time because of the ascension and the descending of the Spirit. So thirdly, at the ascension, you have the commencement of the high priestly ministry of Jesus, which is the ministry of intercession. You can look at the ministry of Jesus from three points of view. 
he was prophet, he is priest, and he is and shall be king. So in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he's, he's functioning as the prophet. He is that prophet. Uh, God said to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, and the people are to listen to him. Whoever refuses him will be cut off. So Jesus is that prophet. So he comes speaking God's word, and then he gives himself as the sacrifice. But now as he's ascended into heaven, now he's entered into his priestly ministry. So now he's there before God's throne, making intercession for us. Hebrews chapter four tells us that. Listen, it says this, chapter four, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest, listen, who has passed through the heavens. That's the ascension. So the author of Hebrews is describing what Jesus is doing now that he's ascended back to heaven. He goes on, Jesus, the son of God, he's the one who's passed through the heavens. Since that's the case, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then chapter seven, verse 25 of Hebrews says, since he, Christ, always lives to make intercession for us. So the ascension means that Jesus has entered into his priestly ministry, which is interceding for us. So that's what the Lord is doing right now. He is there at the right hand of the Father. He's making intercession for us. Do you realize that? That Jesus is praying for you. You know, I love it when people tell me they're praying for me. I'm so thankful whenever somebody says, hey, I've been praying for you. I, I'm just really appreciative of that. And as wonderful as that is, you know, when it dawns on me, the, the truth that Jesus is praying for me, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Jesus is praying for me. I know that he never falls asleep on the job. That's great. So I don't have to worry about that. And also, I know that he knows what I really need. He knows what I need more than I know what I need. And so he's praying for the things that I really need. And guess what? He also knows what God's plan, God's will, God's purposes. So he prays according to that for me. Isn't that amazing to think of that? That that's what, that's one of the things the Lord is doing this moment. Now he's also, according to John in his first letter, he's also our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sin. And what that means is that he is there before the Father just as the representative of all the redeemed. So when we sin, when Satan accuses us before God, Jesus is there as our advocate. Jesus is there as our representative. And so what that means is that we never have to worry that God's attitude toward us has changed. We never have to worry that God is going to listen to the slander that is brought against us. We never have to worry that God is at some point going to say, well, you know what? Um, I, I'm not going to be able to 
fully complete the work of redemption on your behalf because after all, you know, the devil came here and he told me stuff about you that you've recently done. Uh, That's never going to happen because through our advocate, his advocacy is basically just his very presence being the testimony of his redemptive work. So it's not like we shouldn't think of it like, you know, God the Father is there in heaven. Uh, the devil comes up and says, hey, have you seen that guy, Brian? He says he's your servant. Do you know what he's doing? And God goes, hmm, no, tell me about it. You know, the devil tells him some stuff. And it's not like God looks over at Jesus and goes, okay, what, what do we got going here? Hey, don't worry, Father, I, I got it covered. Let me, here, let me advocate for him. That doesn't happen in heaven. <laughs> Just the very presence of Jesus. That's all, that's all there is. It's not like Jesus is up there arguing our case. Uh, you know, God really wants to zap us, but Jesus is going, no, 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 God. No, remember, Father, I died for them. That's not happening. It's just he's, his presence there. That is the advocacy itself. His blood that was shed, all of that. So that's what Jesus is doing, and that's what commenced upon his arrival back into heaven he entered into his high priestly ministry. So he's interceding for us. He's advocating for us. But then fourthly, and, and this one is so important for us all the time, but you know, especially when we're facing challenging things, fearful things, uncertain things, this is, this is where things uh, you know, really become important in regard to this doctrine of the ascension because the ascension signifies that Jesus is now seated on the throne of the universe and that he controls all things. That's, that's what the ascension is also telling us, that Jesus is in control. Remember, Jesus said, Matthew records this in his account of the Great Commission, Jesus said, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. We need to remember, and we need to remember it today, that Jesus is in control. He is sovereign over all power. There there is no power in the universe that is any sort of a match for his power. So we, as his people, knowing that he's ascended to the right hand of power, knowing that all power has been given to him, you know, that means that I can have absolute confidence. I can rest. I can be at peace in the midst of crazy days because I know in the end, the Lord is in control. Now, Paul stated this numerous times and in different ways, but listen to what he uh, wrote to the Ephesians. He said concerning Christ, uh, his resurrection and ascension, he said that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is seated in the heavenly places far above all principality and power. 
This is Paul's way of describing. There, there are no forces. There, are, there is no power in the end that can resist the power of Christ. And writing to the Colossians, Paul said this concerning Christ. Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then one more quickly, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus the Son is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So Paul and the Hebrews writer both say the same thing. Paul says that in him all things consist. Now, the word consist there means all things are held together. And Hebrews 1.3 says the same thing, right? He upholds all things by the word of his power. Do you ever look up at the night sky and see, you know, that full moon occasionally? And does the thought ever cross your mind like, why is that there? Why, why does that stay in its orbit? Why, why doesn't it just spin off into some other place? Or do you take a, a, a step further and think that, you know, I'm actually living on something that's a little bigger than that, that's just out in space, doing the same kind of thing. Why, why does it do this? Why do these planets stay in their orbit? Why does the sun rise every day? Why do the tides go in and out? Why, why does all of this happen? Well, you know, if you took all the scientists in the world and, and pulled them all, they would give you ideas and they could tell you about certain aspects of all these things. But at the end of the day, not a single one of them could tell you actually why it works like this. The Bible tells us why it works like this, because in him, all things are held together. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Do we believe that as God's people? Well, if we don't believe that, we're going to be shaken. We're going to be moved. We're going to be rocked when things start going crazy here in this world. But if we recognize that the Lord is in control over all of these things, that there is no power on earth, under the earth, in heaven, there's no power that can resist his power. And this, of course, this is a huge theme of scripture. God's control over all things. We find this from uh, cover to cover in the Bible. This is why it's so important that we read our Bibles, that we know the history, that we understand the stories, that we see how God has worked. I think of the story of Joseph, one of my favorite stories. But, you know, as you watch the story of Joseph unfold and you see all of these, these forces of evil working against him, and, and it just seems like a hopeless cause. But in the end, you realize that, no, God was actually working out a plan the whole time. And so at the end of it all, Joseph would look at his brothers who betrayed him, and he would say this, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good to bring me to this place. 
You know, you, you find a similar thing with Daniel. Daniel is led into captivity as a young man, and he goes into Babylon, and he's, he's brought there before the king. And, and all of this seems like such a disaster. But it's there in the court of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel is able to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, this great ancient ruler, dreams that have to do with, with, with things that haven't even happened yet concerning the return of Christ. Or, or think of the story of Esther. You know, some people look at Esther and they say, well, you know, there was actually a debate. Should Esther even be in the Bible? Because there's no reference to God in the book of Esther. There's no reference to Yahweh. There's no reference to Elohim. There's no mention of God. But the fact of the matter is, God is all over the book of Esther. The sovereignty of God, the providence of God is all over the book of Esther. And that's what the book of Esther is about, showing how God overrules in the affairs of men. And we see this over and over. Like I said, it's a great theme of scripture. Of course, we see it ultimately in Jesus, where it seemed like the powers of darkness had defeated Jesus and his plan and purpose. But the reality is, through the very thing that they thought would defeat him was the thing that he used to defeat them. They thought killing him would defeat him, but killing him just gave him the opportunity to defeat death. So we find this over and over and over. And what this tells us is since Jesus is the sovereign ruler sitting upon the throne, that everything in our lives, good and bad, God uses for his glory and our good. And we do not need to fear because Christ is in control of all things. Now, as we make our way through Acts, this is what we see. We see the kingdom of God is this unstoppable force. Now, you think about it for a minute. Think about the book of Acts here. Think about, uh, we, we read here about the people that were gathered together, right? We read these names here, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James. Who are these guys? They're just ordinary guys. They're people just like us. But these are the people that are going to change the world. How is this going to happen? Well, they have this unstoppable power behind them. That's how it's going to happen. And, and we see this all through the story, how nothing can stop the purpose of God in Christ, not the wicked political schemes of Pilate, Herod, the Jewish leaders, uh, not the imprisonment or even the martyrdom of the apostles, not the, uh, the prejudice or, or the racism of the Judaizers, not the shipwrecks, the stoning, the vipers, uh, none of these forces are able to stop what God has decreed that this gospel is to go out. Why? Because Jesus is sitting upon the throne of power. All power has been given to him. And so we need to remember that as we look at uh, a world that is becoming more frightening and as we look at a future that seems to be more and more uncertain, certainly from the human standpoint, it, 
it seems to be more and more uncertain, but we're not looking at it from the human standpoint. We're looking at it from the picture of Christ ascended into heaven and seated upon the throne. Now, as we go back in closing to the Apostles' Creed, I want to take you back to what was said there at the end of that passage that we read from the Creed. There it says, remember, seated at the right hand of the Father and then coming to judge the living and the dead. So Psalm 110 says this, and it's applied in the New Testament to Jesus. It says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's what's happened. Jesus has entered back into heaven, seated now upon the throne of glory, waiting through this this process of history as God subdues all of the enemies of Christ. That's what's happening. And then the climactic moment will be that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, we all know that he didn't come yesterday, right? (laughs) And so let's never, ever again, when somebody sets a date, even for a moment, think that that's a day he's coming. Because over and over and over again, we see that it's not. But of course, like we pointed out before, we should have known that already because Jesus told us no one knows the day or the hour. But just suffice it to say, he didn't come back yesterday. But he is going to come back. He is going to come back. And look at verse 11. Here it is. Verse 11. Jesus is, he's ascending up before them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This Jesus, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That is the promise. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father. God is making his enemies his footstool. There's coming a day when he will come back. And just like the angel said, just as you saw him go, he's going to come again. You know what? I, I, I just find this I don't know. I just, I like this. He is going to come back to the very spot that he left from. Jesus ascended back into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah tells us that's exactly where he's going to touch down when he returns to the earth. His foot is going to step on the Mount of Olives. And I've been on the Mount of Olives. And I think, man, this is the place. This is the place. Of course, that's the the. The area of Gethsemane, that's the place where Jesus was uh, on, on that night that he was betrayed there on, on the mount, on the side of the Mount of Olives. But, but it was there near Bethany that he ascended and the angels were there to remind them he's going to come again just as you saw him go. Now, there's, there's going to be two responses or or two things that will proceed from his coming again. And, And they have to do with the two different attitudes that there are in reference to Jesus. There's only two places that one can be 
concerning Jesus. There's no third place. There's no middle ground. Jesus himself said it. You're either for me or against me. And so there's these, these two positions. There are those who believe in him, have trusted in him. And so upon his return, it will be a return to receive them to himself, that where he is, they may always be. As he said in John 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. So that's one group. But the other group is that group that have opposed him, resisted him. That group that we saw there in the word enemies, until I make your enemies your footstool, that group will also face Christ at his return. And this is what Paul says will transpire there. He said, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all who believe. So the Bible is very clear about this. And we need to be clear about this. We need to be clear about it for our own well-being, but we need to be clear about it as we communicate these truths to other people. You know, we're, we're living in a time when um, there, there is this this attempt to just sort of water everything down and, and to make it palatable and to make it more uh, acceptable. So it, it's not uncommon today to find amongst people who claim to be Bible believers to say things like, well, you know, the, this idea of like an eternal judgment, this idea of a hell as we've understood it in the past, that's not really accurate. That's not really the way it is. You know, what, what's, what's probably really going to happen, you know, is just that, you know, people, uh, you know, some people are saying now that, you know, in the end, everybody's going to be saved because Christ died for everybody in the end, whether they like it or not, they're just going to, they're going to end up being saved. And, you know, you just, that's not what the Bible says. Now, I don't take any joy in the concept of, of a place of everlasting punishment. I'm not excited about that or gleeful over it. It's horrific. It's tragic. But guess what? It's what the Bible teaches. Whether we like it or not, it's what the Bible teaches. And I don't have, and you don't have, and nobody has any right or authority to alter that. So as people are seeking to do that today, and it's, it's becoming more and more uh, the habit to water all of this down. And to just say, well, you know, there is no judgment in the future. Jesus didn't come, you know, he didn't come to condemn. He's never going to condemn. Uh, he's the lamb. He came to sacrifice. But, uh, you know, that, that's, that's all there is to it. Well, the Bible speaks of the wrath of the lamb. And so there is that day coming. And as Paul vividly described it there in 2 Thessalonians, that's the reality for some. But, of course... The good news is that no one has to perish. No one has to be in that place of being cast out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Jesus, who sits upon the throne, wants all to be part of his kingdom. He came and he died for every single person. So atonement was made for everyone. 
so everyone can come. But of course, in the end, everyone must make their own choice. And so as we consider this important, I think you maybe see now the importance of the ascension. These are the things that we understand from the ascension, that the, the redemptive work of Christ is done. It's completed. Nothing can be uh, added to it. And now because he ascended and sent the spirit, he is with us. He indwells our hearts. He's with us as we gather. He's with us wherever we go, even to the end of the age. And as we live out this life in this world, we have this advocate with the father. We don't have to worry about whether our sins are going to catch up with us someday. They've already been taken care of. We have this intercession, Christ knowing the, the mind of the spirit and, and praying for us according to the will of God. And we have this confidence that our Lord, our King is seated upon his throne and nothing's out of his control. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. If you, you know, we live in a very skeptical age, right? Everybody's a critic. Everybody's got their opinion. Everybody wants to tell you why you can't believe the Bible and all of that stuff. But you know, if you just, if you just think about this, the Bible presents a worldview that corresponds to reality. The Bible presents a worldview that corresponds to reality. What the Bible says about human beings, what the Bible says about the world, what the Bible says about life experiences, all of that, you know what? That's the way it is. You can come up with all different kinds of philosophies to try to refute it, but your philosophies never match with reality. It's an, it's an ideology. Well, it should be like this. But no, the way it is, is the way the Bible says it is. And the Bible says that the world is going to become more and more and more chaotic and more and more and more in revolt against the maker until that final day when the Lord himself descends once again from heaven to take his rightful dominion over all of the earth. And he invites anyone and everyone to come be part of that. And so I pray that there's not a single person here today that, that's not part of that through trusting in Christ who died, Christ who rose, Christ who ascended and sat at the right hand of God, Christ who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth of the ascension of Jesus we thank you, Lord, that just as he ascended to the throne, that one day he will return to the earth to establish your kingdom, that unstoppable kingdom. Nobody can prevent this from happening. Oh, we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, as we listen to the newscast or we read the papers or whatever, and we hear about all the catastrophic things, and we hear about the the wars and the rumors of wars and the threats and all of this unsettling and unrest. Lord, we thank you that in the end, you are on the throne. And that's what we rest in. That's where our confidence lies. And that's where our peace comes from. Thank you so much. Lord, strengthen us 
through these truths that we've considered today. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone with us today that has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would do that and that they would do it now. Amen.